You're listening to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics, The Nom. Doctor, my eyes have seen the years and the slow parade of fears without crying. Now I want to understand. I have done all that I could to see the evil and the good without hiding. You must help me if you can. Doctor, my eyes. Hello and welcome to episode 84 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time around, I'm going to be looking at The Nom 74, which is part two of the two part Siege at On Loke storyline, and that storyline takes place in April of 1972. And since I've already covered this month, I'm going to skip historical context one more time and talk about Season 3 of the television series China Beach. Our song this time around is Doctor My Eyes by Jackson Brown, which was the number 24 on the Billboard Hot 100 for the week of April 8th, 1972, which is around the time this issue takes place. It was Jackson Brown's first top 10 hit. It would go into the top 10 later on in the year. And it was his only top 10 hit of the 1970s. Uh, His next big hit was 1982's Somebody's Baby, which was on the soundtrack to Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But it, it is of note that the 1979 song Running on Empty would peak at number 11. I included this one even though it was much further down the charts than I usually grab a song from because I'm not only a fan of singer-songwriters from the 70s, but I really do enjoy Jackson Brown's music. Uh, If you have a chance to pick up any of his 70s albums or his greatest hits set that came out about 10 or 11 years ago, I highly recommend it. Now, on to the comic. Like last issue, our comic book this time around has two stories. It has a main one, and it has the next chapter of the backup that is called Stateside. The NOM number 74 came out on September 29, 1992, and it had a cover date of November with a price of $1.75. The cover by Mike Harris and Mark McKenna shows Ed Marks and his fatigues and hats surrounded by Vietnamese children while several VC soldiers point weapons at him. It's engaging enough, and Harris and McKenna are pretty solid when it comes to the covers. Our title is Rough Puffs, and our creative team is as follows. Don Lomax, writer. Wayne Van Zant, artist. Phil Felix, letterer, colorist. Tim Toohey, assistant editor. Don Daly, editor. And Tom DeFalco was your editor-in-chief. We open in the aftermath of the carnage that ended last issue. Our team is on the road near Loch Ninn, and there are bodies everywhere. Knowing that they can't stay where they are, Ed Marks, Tex-Mex, Rocket Man, and the orphans they had taken with them from the village head toward Onlok in hopes that they'll catch a break. 
They walk along the road and Ed recalls his time with the 25th and decides that he's had enough of hurt and war and he decides to give Tex his gun. 20 minutes later, they come upon a destroyed Arvin armored patrol. Ed moves from one vehicle to another, hoping to find food, but his and the other guy's search of the area is interrupted by the arrival of a tank that begins firing on them, but is then taken out by another soldier who shoots the gunner and puts a grenade in the tank. Ed introduces himself to the soldier and his friends, Rough Puffs, or regional soldiers. They find out that Anlok is under attack by a number of tanks and they may ride with them, but they're after the enemy, so they're headed straight for the danger. Tex suggests that they go right toward the action despite the risk, and they load up the Rough Puffs vehicle and head out. Two kilometers away from Anlok, the soldiers let the kids off their vehicle and Ed decides to stay with them and tag along, telling Tex-Mex to take care of the kids. When they are close to Unlook, they use Ed as a diversion, pretending he's a POW when they come upon an NVA tank. It works well, and they blow the tank up. But then their own troop carrier is attacked by another NVA tank, and it even runs over their own men in order to pursue its enemy. They take a chance on crossing the bridge to Unlook, which is wired with explosives as quickly as possible, and they make it over with the NVA tank falling into the river. The troops are then greeted as heroes by the people they've sworn to protect, and the destruction of the enemy tanks promises to boost morale in the days ahead. While this issue isn't a bad one, it's a bit of a letdown if I'm being completely honest. The ending of the first part of the story was so brutal, there were people who were dead after being run over and the guys were just in shock. That's still here in the beginning, but at the end this seems a bit anticlimactic to be honest. I guess that is realistic in a way. You have this long journey down a dangerous road, and then you have Ed and the Rough Puffs narrowly avoiding death on the road to Unlook. It felt to me like Lomax had to find a way to end the story with the kids somehow, and he just shoved it in there. And like I said, it could have been worse. This could have ended up being Braddock, Mission in Action 3. Plus, I do like seeing Ed Marks in the book in this role as a journalist covering the war who has seen the war and is now our reader stand-in, but in a different way. We've seen the war as well. And the art from Wayne Van Zandt is consistent as ever. So while this wasn't a perfect story, and I'm giving kind of a short review here, there also wasn't too much else I had to say about it. I do have to wonder that if the backup story is kind of taking away from Lomax's ability to write a full story, or if he feels he would feel the need to stretch things out, because... You have this uh, short backup story in the back, which, and, and the book is not expanding in any way. It's not, not like the book expanded to 36 pages or anything like that. So maybe that affected the way he was telling it. We're, we're not at the uh, writing for the trade era of comics yet. But overall, the book is still pretty solid. So like I said, I can't come down too much on the main story of the book here, even if I'm not really giving it that much attention. The backup story that I mentioned, well, I'll have a recap of that after this. In the annals of television history, there are TV shows and characters that changed our culture and helped define generations. These are not those shows. 
It's time to close up the bar, leave the war, and quit your yuppie whining so you can step on board the Enterprise D, run alongside the Hoff, stop time with your fingers, and introduce your family to the voice input child identikit. Because this summer, Pop Culture Affidavit is taking you to the depths of 80s and 90s television with It Came From Syndication! For seven weeks, I'll be taking a look at a variety of syndicated TV genres, from the lauded science fiction of Star Trek The Next Generation to the... This was a show? Of small wonder. Along the way, we'll battle with the Thundercats, run through the funhouse, give thumbs up at the movies, and have a very current affair. Pop Culture Affidavit presents... It Came From Syndication! Coming July 11th, to popcultureaffidavit.com and two true freaks.com. Stateside continues in this issue with Once a Sergeant, and our creators are Don Lomax, writer, Mike Harris, penciler, Jimmy Palmiotti, inker, Phil Felix, letterer, John Calise, colorist, Tim Tui is the assistant editor, Don Daly is the editor, and Tom DeFalco is still your editor-in-chief. So we're back home on April 6th of 1972, and we're in the New York City Police Department with Sergeant Poklau, who's sitting in a uniform behind a desk, smoking a cigarette, and reading a newspaper, amazed at how Ed Marks is now a war correspondent in the NAM. He hopes that he stays safe, and he gets a call saying there's possible hostage situation over at the VA building. Sarge runs the block and a half to the building and finds out that there is one perp armed with a handgun and two hostages, maybe three. There have been no demands yet. The cops on the scene talk to the VA administrator, Mr. Klitzner, who tells them that the guy with the hostages is nuts and is finally cracked. Poklo asks who the guy is and he says the man's name is Dennis Lerner and that he's been back for three years. He's a real whiner as well, having been to the VA hospital for a dozen operations. Sarge says, yeah, it's irritating when a vet tries to get what's coming to him, huh? Klitzner tells Sarge to do his job. Sarge responds by telling him to step aside and stay behind the barricade. One of the other officers says that SWAT is on its way, but Sarge can try to talk to him in the meantime. Pokolo heads into the building and approaches the room where Dennis has his hostages. He tells Dennis that he wants to talk, but he's instead met by a blonde woman. And instead of summing up the last three pages of the story, I'm actually going to go ahead and read it out. Sarge asks, what's his story? She says, the same as a lot of other Vietnam vets. He's been in and out of the hospital a dozen times, suffered through a dozen operations, then dumped out to the street to fare for himself until next time. He has no family, no one who cares. He has no place to live and lives on the street except for those periodic painful hospital visits. He's not always like this. Most of the time, he's just like you and me. It's just after a particularly bad week or two of his recurring nightmares. And Sarge says, yeah, I've seen it before. Do you have any specifics? It says here that he was a forward observer for artillery in 1969. Intelligence had reported a small village in his area of operation was occupied solely by the enemy. It wasn't. He called in an artillery barrage like he was ordered to do so. It lasted 15 minutes, over 400 rounds. Lerner entered the village with the mop-up squad. They found mostly women and children. 
Sarge asks how he'd get injured. Unrelated, on a mission later on, a landmine. What's going to happen to him? Do you have to arrest him? Sarge says, I got a big apartment on the east side. I'm hardly ever there with this job. He can stay with me as long as he wants. And he turns to the captain. He says, false alarm, captain. He'll be fine. He's just a little disoriented. Turns to Klitzner and says, this whole mess has cost the taxpayers of this fine city a bundle. You ever heard of the story of the little boy who cried wolf, Mr. Klitzner? The woman says, um, sergeant, could you dispose of this for me? I found it earlier. Uh, would you mind? And she hands him the gun. She asks, maybe I could call you tomorrow, you know, to see how Dennis is doing. He says, that would be nice. And then uh, Dennis is, Sarge is wheeling him away in the wheelchair. Dennis says, Charlie's at the wire, Sarge. Sarge says, I know, troop. For some of us, they will always be, son. You know, I'm not 100% sold on Mike Harris and Jimmy Palmiotti's work here. Although, if you go over to Pop Culture Affidavit from back in, in May or June, you'll hear me talk about Cops the Job. Uh, where it was much more solid, I think, maybe having the time to do that four-issue mini tighten things up a bit. But I do see some really good stuff. Uh, I see stuff that almost recalls Michael Golden's work on the early issues of the book. But sometimes it does get a little cartoony and sloppy. It's not distracting. Some artists of the early 1990s would be really distracting in books. Um... Chris Wozniak is probably the name that I'm thinking of off the top of my head. And, and not, not to try to insult the man, but when his artwork was on a book, like a superhero book, I know he did a number of the Eclipso annuals uh, from back in 92 around this time. It was really, really distracting in terms of taking away from the story uh, because it was over-stylized. In some cases, it was bad. That's not the case here. It fits the story very well. It's just, I don't know, part of me would, would have wanted it to be tighter in a way, but I'm not an artist, so I just, there's uh, there's something, there's something just needed, like almost like a little more oomph or something. But uh, Harrison Palmiati, I believe, were very young at this time, and they were both just starting out, so I can't really fault that much, to be completely honest, because it's a solid, solid piece of art in the in the book. And it's a solid story. Um, it's a strong story, in fact. Sarge was a great character back in the early issues of the book. And it's and and he goes and he becomes a cop, and that's totally in line with the character that he is. He would totally come back to the world and be a cop. Plus, he was always the guy with the tough exterior who cared, and we see that here. Dennis isn't nuts. This isn't some sort of melodrama being played out for the sake of a Siri B. Pat sitcom ending. Dennis is a guy who's hurting like so many other did. In fact, this puts him around the same time as the whole Lieutenant Dan portion of Forrest Gump, if I'm not mistaken. And, uh, you know, that lines up even though, like, Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump take place, um, or, or, or that movie didn't come out for another couple of years. But Dennis is also a guy who's being denied the help that he so desperately needs. Now, look. I have no experience with the VA or VA hospitals, so I'm going to try to not to interject any personal opinion here. But the story is in line with other pieces of this era 
or earlier, like Springsteen's Born in the USA, where the vet goes to see his VA man as the lyric goes, he says, son, don't you understand? The VA is a bureaucracy. I'm a public school teacher. I work in a bureaucracy, and I can tell you that it can be a frustrating endeavor to deal with a bureaucracy. So it's no wonder that there are times when people do not get the care that they need for whatever reason. And a lot of times that reason is not malicious intent or anything like that. And that's the, the reality of, of a bureaucracy like, well, anything in the government, the VA in this case. Plus, our country's knowledge and relationship with uh, what was then called PTSD and the mental health of soldiers and other veterans has been complicated over the years and has resulted in too many broken, too many broken people and vets' suicides. Yes, I realized that I said I wouldn't interject personal opinion into this, but I'm trying not to do it too much. I, I think I'm hoping that no matter what your political leanings are, you'll agree that as much as possible needs to be done to help veterans who are returning from war get mental health care and support so that they can go back into the world and be productive, feel love, feel like they're contributing to society and in some cases and unfortunately more than there should be uh, not consider or contemplate or attempt or commit suicide uh, that's a very very serious issue that's been going on since prior to Vietnam uh, but especially um, in recent years with the two wars we've been fighting now it's not like Dennis would have killed himself in this story but you know I think that Sarge kind of thinks he might, or Sarge connects with him. He knows him. He's seen, he says, I've seen this. And Poclo, again, he's portrayed by it with having this tough exterior. And I love how he tells the bureaucrat off. And it's it's actually, that's a great couple of panels. Klitzner is a, he's almost like a cartoon character, that kind of sniveling little mustache, bald glasses, little little bureaucrat. And, and Sarge is this big guy. And he's like, you know, right up in his face. And, and Klitzner's like leaning back like, oh my God. Don't stop yelling at me. Um, it, it's a really, it's a really, really well done panel. But Poclo also has this real understanding of what's going on in these men's heads, like I said. And I read the read the dialogue here um, because the woman at the VA center is explaining Dennis, but he's also uh, he's also got Sarge in there responding, and and Sarge has a few lines, and Lomax shows that he really gets this character even if he didn't create the character. And I'm honestly finding myself looking forward to these stories as much as the main story. Uh, and I'm curious to see how the next few issues of these stateside stories will play out. I almost wish that we would have had an annual a special, like collect these all an annual specialist or some sort of issue that would have been, um, I don't know, just like more of this because I'm, I'm really enjoying these mainly because they were the original characters of the series but even then at least we have these which is really cool because it was something that I think a lot of fans and myself included were hoping to see more of as as the series went on 
I'm going to get to my coverage of China Beach Season 3 in a moment, but before that, uh, there are no letters. We are going to take a quick look at ads. Um, the Charleston Chew ad is now on the inside cover, so you can send away for that Wolverine and Jubilee comic. There is a movie ad for Dr. Giggles starring Larry Drake from, um, from L.A. Law. If you're from more high and you get sick, fall on your knees and pray you die quick. Dr. Giggles, a new prescription for terror. Never saw that movie. I remember seeing this ad, though. Uh, there is a pinnacle by score football card with ad with Barry Sanders, saying that Barry Sanders believes that a Super Bowl ring is worth dying for, that fourth and long is a running situation, and that pinnacle is the most serious card in football today. He obviously knows what he's talking about. It's a double-page ad, by the way. I always ama- I'm always amazed at the amount of copy on ads in comics still. Um, ooh, we have a double-page spread for entertainment this month. This is huge. This is crazy. This is blisteringly hot. Uh, they're gearing up for Christmas. If you postmark or fax the fax machine, make sure it's legible. Uh, by November 2nd, you're going to get things in time for Christmas, and you can get Doom 2099. Hey, Professor Allen, that book is hot. Ravage 2099, which is written by Stan the Man Lee, and of course, Spider Man 2099, which is recommended. X Mutants in the Ruins of Earth, the last six humans battle a planet of mutants. This new color title from Malibu ties in with a hot new Sega game and should be a huge hit. Blazing hot! Incredible Hulk 400, which has an eye-catching holographics cover. That'll be hot! Um, Pit is finally here. That's created and written and illustrated by Dale the Hulk Kion. That is Image's hottest new title. It's so hot it's burned the flesh from your hands. That smells really gross. Marvel Milestones. I guess these are reprints of old... Yeah, these look like they're reprints of old issues. Um, These are hot new collector's editions. A must-have for all Marvel fans. All right. Predator is crossing over with Magnus Robot Fighter. The Silver Surfer number 75 is highlighted by a beautiful foil embossed cover, like number 50 was. And it features the death of a major character. Oh, man. 90s, 90s. It's 90s, 90s, 90s. And Wetworks. It's an all-new Violet Covert Strike Team by Wills X-Men Portatio and Image Comics. Death's Head is by popular demand in an all-new monthly series. And the Executioner storyline, which I'm pretty sure was X-C-U-T-I-O-N-E-R, but they're spelling it X-E-C-T. Ugh, anyway. I guess is there's a shot of Death's Head holding a, an unconscious rogue. Maybe that's from a crossover issue with the X-Men or something that they were trying to get people. I know Wolverine apparently appear, appears in one issue, so... Um, let's see what else we got. We got just a bunch of mega hits like Bloodshot and the Harbinger trade and... Operation Urban Storm from Image Comics, Ren and Stimpy number one, Robin three, Robin three thousand, which I recently reread. It's actually pretty good. Wizard was on issues fifteen and sixteen. Those had limited edition cards. Wildcats in number fifteen and and Wetworks in sixteen. 
So, man, this is just, this is chock full of mega hits and goodness of 90s hotness, and I'm running out of words here, so let's flip to the next ad, which is a double page. There's a couple of double page ads here. There's like three of them here. Uh, for a Marvel video game, Spider-Man, um, Spider-Man, X-Men, things like that, uh, for various systems. So you have the Arcade's Revenge, Spider-Man the X-Men Arcade's Revenge for the Super Nintendo. You have Return of the Sinister Six for the Nintendo. And the Spider-Man 2 game for Game Boy. This is the time when Nintendo was still putting out three systems. The NES would stop um, being produced and they would stop making games for it in the early 94 but i can imagine some of the games like the spider-man game might actually go for a little bit of money because this is around the time where you know these are becoming more and more rare we have a spider-man special edition which is a the trial of venom which is a unicef benefit book so if you buy that if you order that or uh with a with a gift you contribute money to UNICEF. Skybox has football cards featuring Jerry Rice. On the inside back cover, there is an X-Men... I believe this is a board game? Um, attention, X-Men fans. Lead the uncanny X-Men to victory. The world as we know it is in danger. The fiercest collection of Marvel evil mutants are poised to destroy everything in their path. The only powers that can save the planet are those of the uncanny X-Men and you mastermind it all. In the Marvel Comics X-Men Alert adventure game, you get 18 collectible X-Men figures, each with its own power stat card, giving you their fighting skills, intelligence, and durability, all true to authentic X-Men lore. You and your friends create X-Men teams to see who can survive the fierce battles to capture the evil mutants. Will it be you? Or will the powers of evil prevail? The time to find out is now because it's an all-out X-Men alert. And there is an ad for those Marvel masterpieces on the cards in the back cover. I find it funny that on both of the Marvel ads in here, the, the video game ad and the, and the Marvel um, masterpieces ad, the word advertisement is on there. Like, I don't know it's an ad. There must have been some sort of legal thing going on. Anyway, that's the nom number 74. I'm going to take a quick break, and after this, I'll be back with Season 3 of China Beach. So are we going to be working together? Really? Worst film you ever saw. Well, my next one will be better. It's the Film and Water Podcast. The Film & Water Podcast covers movies new and old, classic, and uh, not-so-classic. Proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network, available weekly on fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Hey guys, uh, before we get into the segment about Season 3 of China Beach, I have a little bit of a edit that I need to clear up, I guess. it's It's not a major thing, but... Um, as I was editing this episode and then going into when I was recording season four's coverage, I realized that throughout this episode, I referred to the character of Sergeant Bob Pepper, who is one of the characters in the show, as Barry Pepper. Barry Pepper is an actor. He played Roger Maris in the movie 61 with an asterisk. And I keep saying Barry, and I think I 
had a brain fart and I wrote and I looked at it I wrote it into the script too so I must have I don't know what the heck was going on so either way it's a mistake that kept recurring on my part and I didn't have the time to re-record all the audio here so I put this little blurb at the beginning uh, I hope you enjoy my coverage of China Beach season three <laughs> Through the mirror of my mind Time after time I see reflections of you and me Reflections of the way life used to be Reflections of the love you took from me Oh, as I peer through the window of lost time Looking over my yesterday to talk about season three of China Beach, the ABC series about nurses in Vietnam that I've been covering for the last two episodes. This season, which aired from September of 1989 until May of 1990, had 22 episodes, and it is the longest season of the show, at least in terms of the number of episodes out of the four seasons that the show has. China Beach also got a more prominent time slot halfway through the year. Uh, It began airing on 10 p.m. on Thursday nights during the fall, but then in the spring, after Monday Night Football and and various ABC movies or something that happened in the winter, fall and winter time slots, um, it was moved to Monday night at 9 o'clock. That would not last, by the way. Uh, The time slot would change for the fourth season because the show, while it was a critical darling, it was not a hit ratings-wise. Now I'll get into that, how that affected the show later on in the next episode when I cover season four, which is the final season. Uh, I'm not going to have a huge, long amount of... uh, coverage for this particular episode uh, for this season, even though it's the longest season. Um, I'll talk about why in a minute, uh, but I'm going to start with the new characters to the show. There are a few who are recurring or supporting or were um, added to the main credits. Tom Sizemore had a recurring role um, and as Vinny, this, who got, this GI who has this thing for uh, McMurphy at one point. There's also a medic in Dodger's unit who is named Jeff Hires. Uh, he's played by Ned Vaughn, who also has a couple of minor appearances in seasons two and four. In fact, he's in the second to last episode in a flashback sequence. He is the subject uh, about uh, maybe about halfway through the season when uh, in a two-parter, he gets gravely injured and then dies in the second part. The two major additions to the cast are Holly Pellegrino, who is played by Ricky Lake, 
And officially, Troy Evans comes on as Sergeant Barry Pepper. Uh, Lake, Ricky Lake, was coming off the success of her role in the original version of John Waters' Hairspray. Uh, and then he would, she would later go on to have her own talk show a couple of years after this. Um, not that it matters, but Ricky Lake's career has been partially not defined, but noted by her weight, um, at least through the late 80s and early 90s. And then she was very, very heavy, uh, especially in her role in Hairspray. And I think that was part of the character as well. Then when she starts her talk show in about, was it 93, I think it was, uh, she had lost a tremendous amount of weight. And um, this China Beach role is actually pre-weight loss. Um, I also would note that she has an appearance in the seriously underrated uh, teen drama movie, Where the Day Takes You. Uh, I, if you could track that one down, it's worth at least one watch. Anyway, in China Beach, Ricky Lake plays Holly Pellegrino. Uh, she is perky. She is outgoing. Her role is as a donut dolly, um, kind of the same role that Cherry had, that Nan Woods had as Cherry back in the first season and into the first half or so of the second season. Holly is not exactly like Cherry. She's kind of she's more friendly like cherry always came off as kind of naive and bubbly holly has a little bit of wit about her and her thing is not there's no storyline about a lost brother or anything there is a storyline uh where she does discover that she is pregnant and she ends up having an abortion uh that's an episode called holly's choice which is shot backward or it's 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 edited to be backwards so you start at the end and you're working backward through time over the course of the episode uh, i believe seinfeld did an episode of that in the late 90s holly's thing when she does appear though at least in a supporting capacity when the story isn't exactly about her is that she tends to be the social chair among the five and dimes so she's always kind of getting things together for people to participate in or do or have fun with that sort of stuff and as much as she does appear in the show the season she's not in any episodes of season four and doesn't seem to get any flashbacks in any of the episodes that do flashback so i don't know if that was a conscious decision on the producer's choice or they didn't feel they had any way to fit holly into the to the fourth season sergeant pepper yes that is done on purpose is in season three and all of season four and he makes it all the way to the final episode because he does have a significant role as we go forward i think i may have mentioned him in a previous episode when i was talking about frankie because he ends up being assigned frankie ends up being assigned to work with him because sergeant pepper runs the motor pool and this guy is this grizzled old vet in a way i mean he's a he's a big guy he's played by troy evans he's a big kind of comes off as almost like a big teddy bear type of guy but the thing is is that he he's been in the army in some capacity or another since the second world war and so he's grizzled in that way and he has views that are exceptionally more conservative i guess you could say than uh, a number of other people and um one particular view he takes that is uh that is problematic is that he is racist both outwardly and then subtly and uh what the writers do 
is that creates tension for him and Frankie as that goes as the season goes on. But what the writers do a very good job with is they write him beyond just this stereotype, so he's not a one-note character that will be there so that people can learn a lesson about racism or something. Uh, I think we had that in that episode with Richard Tyson in it where, where people were confronting race. They give him complexity, they make him likable, and they give him character growth. By the time you get to the final episode, he does still make comments that I'm seeing adults now make uh, toward a couple of kids here and there of people of, of color and things. And he still has some of those views, but at the same time, there's a it's there's something of it. There's a realistic aspect to it. The way they write him and the way that Troy Evans plays him works on a level of that is a type of person that you would expect to see both then and then in the present of the late 80s and then even now. And um, I really appreciated that. Not that I hold those views, but if you're going for a realistic depiction of something like a war or something like these major events, it's good to have that wide swath of people with views and experiences and perspectives and to create not just the one-off character for the sake of a very special episode but actual developing characters three-dimensional ones people who interact with the main cast on a regular basis and that is one that um, and I think that's a strength of the show the other thing is that he falls for Lila and Lila is another she's she's the other old person so to speak on the base and she is a World War II vet of her own in a big way you know she's been she's been in the in in and out of the in and out of wars and in the army since the 40s and she and Barry connect on that level and then uh they end up being married in the show's final season so that's 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 their arc together um this will all lead into some of my thoughts on the season as a whole which like i said i'm not giving a huge amount of detail to because it's the most uneven of the four third seasons can be like that uh especially if you have a show like this one which didn't really have a first season it had it had like it was like eight episodes i think or seven or eight episodes and that's that's a like a tryout. That's not that's not long enough to be the sort of grind of a first of of a full season. At least back in the late nineteen eighties, the second season wasn't even a full order either. It was about seventeen episodes. So I think between the first and second seasons, you have enough episode for a first season. That by the end of the second season, they've really found their legs, or they they've put together something that's very solid. Given a full 22 episodes, this meanders a bit. Granted, this is the late 80s and the early 90s. It's the time when television drama was not as decompressed in some of its storytelling. We get today's television shows, you've got story arcs that happen over the course of 10, 13, even 22 episodes. And sometimes you can watch an entire episode and not a ton happens, but it does move the story along. Whereas back then... You did have a lot of one and done episodes, or you had you had to tell a complete plot in that hour, in addition to 
moving subplots along, which eventually would get full plots at some point. It's it's very Bronze Age of comics, if you think about it. You know, the idea that you would have these running threads, but you'd always have a villain of the week or or something like that. And I think I think if you think about it like that, you can understand how things were structured. But also, you can understand of how a show like this might meander. As I'll talk about next episode, when the show has an anchor for its whole season or for a long stretch of episodes, like we're trying to get to somewhere or we're trying to see what happens to these characters because of something we saw at the beginning, it really tightens up and it really, really shines. You don't see that in this season, and I wonder if the show, if they really knew where they were going or if they were going when as they went along. Then again, that wasn't a convention of the day. And whereas season one had... Cherry's brother, and it had you know McMurphy's you know reluctance to return and her romance and things like that, and it had a short order season and season four going in. It's kind of like this is the last season, or we this might be the last season, or at some point in season four they were like, yeah, we're done. So this what they do really serves to bring us to a, a satisfying conclusion. Here, we're just kind of like, all right, we're another season. And you do see that a lot with, with third and fourth seasons of, of shows, especially ones that are trying to settle in for a long haul. The other thing that could really be put off-putting in this season of China Beach is when the writers try to shoehorn lightheartedness into an episode and it doesn't work out. Um, there are episodes across the four seasons that mix humor and pathos exceptionally well. Unfortunately, there are there are other episodes, especially this season, where there's flat out silliness that doesn't mix well with the more serious tone of another storyline that's going on. So that's that contributes to its unevenness. Now, I'm not going to really bash this season. It's not. It's still better than full seasons of a number of other television shows. So this is this is me being critical because it's because it is the weakest season but even then it's still good the cast additions are great ricky lake um i do wish ricky lake had stayed on into season four at least we had seen a little bit more of her or or in some way or another she plays the eager kid who wants to be like that like i said the social chair really really well she's not irritating even if she can be like a little bit of a puppy sometimes troy evans like i said makes you like the character, despite the fact that Pepper is totally like good old boy racist, racist at, at the beginning, and and um, a good old boy is a great way to put it. It's it's so it's his his views and everything are done so with such a deft hand. In that, I look at I look at like Richard Tyson's character in the very first in the very second season in the second season with that episode with the the racists and the and and the and the the fighting and I see what's essentially a one-dimensional stereotype kind of a straw man character Pepper is somebody I could I know or I knew at one point or I've met or I've worked with or I've had dealings with or or whatever he makes him he really embodies that character very very well and he's written very well which is again 
one of the major strengths of the show, this characterization. Ned Vaughn's character hires is a really nice guy, uh, but the the death in the middle of the season, I know it's supposed to resonate with the uh, with the characters, especially Booney and Dodger, who were, were friends with the guy. And Booney goes, um, as we go in toward the end of season two and, and three, and really into season four, Booney um, gets mixed up with drugs, especially heroin, and, and, and things get darker and darker and darker as the war gets further and further on into the late 60s and into the early 70s when we do see some flashbacks as we go into especially season four. But Vaughn's death in the middle of the season, it's good, but it doesn't resonate on the level that I felt that Cherry's did, and I think it's probably because Cherry had been so much a huge part of the cast through season one, and Hires is... Hires is like the red shirt at that point because he's he's the new guy and we get to know him for a little bit and then he and then he's the one who gets killed and we've seen that countless times. Now as far as the main characters are concerned, they do get their moments, they do get their character development, especially Dodger. Uh, we get a de- great development of friendship between McMurphy and KC throughout the entire season. This starts with the season premiere which is called The Quiet Earth, which I believe is a reference to a post-apocalyptic movie. In this one, uh, Casey and McMurphy are taken prisoner by the VC, and they're held in an underground bunker. They're then forced to help a wounded VC leader. McMurphy has to actually perform pretty much surgery uh, in conditions that are just absolutely terrible. This is almost like a bottle episode, and if you're under, if you're unfamiliar with the concept of a bottle episode, this is where um, in a comedy or a drama the entire action of the episode takes place in one setting or one room. And a lot of times these are put together, especially with dramas because the producers have run out of money or they, they need, they need to cut costs for, for one of the episodes that they have. So they have everybody like, you know, the villain has locked them all in this room and now they're all going to hash out their differences or we're going to 12 angry men this, or that episode of friends where the entire one episode takes place in Monica and, and, uh, Rachel's apartment. They're all trying to get ready for Ross's science thingy, and Joey walks in where he's wearing all of Chandler's clothes. And could I be wearing any more clothes? And etc. So that's a bottle episode. A lot of the Quiet Earth, the premiere, takes place in that bunker, which uh, makes it feel like we're in that, and and it, it gives us this claustrophobic feeling. And it's they don't go for any elaborate set changes or anything like that. And it, and it works really, really well. It's one of the stronger episodes of the season. Uh, then the McMurphy KC relationship develops even further toward the season's end in two episodes of uh, one of which is really, really solid. Uh, that one is called Phoenix. It's the 19th episode of the season. In this one, KC gets involved with a CIA guy and she ends up getting thrown in prison. McMurphy has to provide an alibi. Um, McMurphy's bailing KC out and McMurphy's being there for KC moves on into the fourth season, especially when we have some flashback episodes where McMurphy is on a downward spiral of her own as her final days and, you know, in her final months in Vietnam and, and KC has left the five and dime and is trying to make a little bit more of a life for herself. And the worlds are kind of colliding where she is more frustrated with her friend's situation than she is helping. And um, Mark Helgenberger plays this character who 
has a heart but is ultimately out for herself because she's very, very guarded because of things that have been in their past really, really well. And it, she stays true to the character all the way really toward until the end of the until the end of the series. And I'll talk about that next episode. The finale is this episode called Strange Brew and it's this trippy like lost weekend episode another again another sort of like bottle type of thing where most of the cast is off they only have the two of them and, and another and another person on on the episode and there's like McMurphy and Casey having this weird vision quest sweat lodge thing with a Native American spirit guide it works to develop their character but it's an episode that you're like I don't know if this episode really works. And the whole like Native American spirit quest thing has been overdone in television drama and and shows anyway. So that's where I was kind of like a little bit side-eyeing the season finale. Moving on though, McMurphy, who is usually the source of a number of serious plot lines, does get a couple of chances to be part of the comedic subplot. Dana Delaney uh, gets a chance to, stretch her comedic chops in a way uh there's one episode called dear china beach where the the main center of the plot is like holly's got all these letters from school kids who are writing to the troops and she wants the people the five and dime to write back the subplot is that mcmurphy gets dysentery she doesn't die this is an oregon trail but you know it's it's like basically dana delaney playing off some you know, digestive humor of, of vomiting and poop jokes. Um, there's also a more serious epi- part of this episode about Dodger, who is coming to terms with the fact that he fathered a Vietnamese son, and that son will come back in the fourth season. Um, I mentioned there were times when the show tried to be funny and serious, and it didn't work, but this is the exception to that to that criticism. It, it works well because... This is a cast that has been together long enough that a silly plotline about dysentery mixed with a serious plotline about having a son, finding out that you have a son, a baby, and and trying to figure out like how you're going to come to terms with it and how you're going to help this child. And in the middle, this story about writing letters back home, it works because these this cast has been together for so long. And you see the experience the writers have with the characters and the experience the cast has with the characters. In other words, this wouldn't have worked in the first or the second season, or early, at least early on in the second season when the show was still finding its feet. And this is like the third episode of the season. So season three starts strong. It ends fairly well. Um, that season finale notwithstanding, but there are some late season three episodes that are really good, but in its middle is where it gets bogged down and, um, episode and, and, uh, you see that where as I go through this, the episodes that I was noting were farther and farther apart. There's some great character development in episode six, which is called ghosts. Uh, this is a plot where McMurphy, Dr. Dick, Casey, and Dodger are literally confronted with their personal ghosts. It's a bit clunky at times, but it does show how the war is affecting all of them personally. One of the things that eventually comes up about Casey's character over the course of the show is that her father sexually abused her. And it informs the motivations for her character of how she escaped, so to speak, um, her, her upbringing and uh, that will come back as we go along through season four. And a number of these you have, you know, Dr. Dick, again, um, his wife 
had divorced him. McMurphy is McMurphy's drinking is becoming more and more of an issue or just becoming more and more prevalent. And then Dodger again with the son, with the with the way he's kind of got things in, inside. Like I said, it, it's important character development. The, the way it's executed is both well done and not. But if we go to 13, we have an episode called Souvenirs. Uh, this is like that episode in the second season called Vets, which was a really strong episode. Uh, Vets featured real-life interviews with Vietnam veterans, and that's the same thing that's going on here. But what this does, instead of just basically be a clip show with interviews... This mixes in an actual plot. So we have all these interviews with Vietnam veterans, and it's mixed in with a narrative of Dodger finishing up his tour in Vietnam. And it is one of the strongest episodes of the season. You have this real-life testimony, which works so well in the second season in that episode, but you also have a plot that moves things forward. And you didn't get that in Vets. But then again... That was them taking a chance on an idea they had, especially in the second season of a show, like I said before, that was finding its feet. Now, we have some really good writing. We have some really good characterization, even better because it's settled in. There's experience here. We know these characters well, and Dodger is going home. And we get him going home in the episode, The Thanks for a Grateful Nation. Uh, he returns home with his son. He begins to, to adjust to life back in the world. And then his friend from back in the world gets his draft notice. And the storyline surrounding him concerns his dodging the draft. The fact that he is going to run. He's going to flee the country instead of reporting for duty. And I have to admit, stories like this one were ones that really appealed to me. Um, I don't know if it's because I've been reading this comic book for so long and watching other movies about Vietnam, and I've been getting a little combat-weary in a sense, although that's... I don't know if that's appropriate to say. But looking at the greater context and the greater world of these characters, as we get through the second half of the four seasons of the series ends up being one of China Beach's greatest strengths. I think back to Tim O'Brien's The Things They Carried, which does much of this really well. It takes a look at people before, during, and after the war. And it makes more than a few, you know, it has more than a few battle scenes, but it, it gives us a whole picture. And what this does in China Beach is it not only gives us that whole picture, but it also establishes continuity. I'm a comic book fan. I love continuity, or at least I know continuity. Sometimes I don't like continuity. But this establishes continuity across the years. Um, and so it's, and if we just set everything in the five and dime and didn't go back and forth and we didn't look at things how they were and how they will be, we would just get constant, kind of the same thing over and over and over and over again. It might get stale, especially since we had a show that did that for years during the 70s. We had MASH. And China Beach and MASH aren't the same show, but when you're putting on a show about nurses in Vietnam and you had a very successful, exceptionally done, very highly rated show about doctors and nurses in the Korean War that really had only closed about five years earlier than when China Beach premiered, you're going to get those comparisons. So China Beach does its 
best at trying to set itself a little bit apart from being just MASH in Vietnam. And I think it does that with these flash forwards and flashbacks, especially as we get into the next season. Now, speaking of that, we do have a flashback episode. It's episode 20 of this season. It's a flashback episode called FNG which stands for F and New Guy. And it's a flashback to 1966 and shows McMurphy arriving in Vietnam. Uh, this is an episode that is done really well. Honestly, this could have been the season finale, uh, but there were two ep- a couple of episodes after that. And we'll get some of McMurphy's early, early experiences in the fourth season as well, especially when Dick flashes back to how their relationship was established and grew over the course of those of that uh, those first few months of the war. Now, uh, that's a really, really quick overview of season three. There's a lot in there. I still think it's worth watching, even if I think it was um, uneven. But I would say if you work your way through it and feel like it's becoming a bit of a slog, it kind of does. Again, China Beach is a hard show to binge. Uh, There's a lot going on in each episode. There is... There will be times when you do want to watch the next episode because you go, I want to see what happens next. I want to see what happens next. And then there will be times where you're like, nope, I'm good. I can come back tomorrow. That's fine. Remember, the show is designed to be viewed week to week, not designed to be watched all at once. So I still recommend checking it out and just making taking your time and making your way through it. Now, there are DVD extras on Season 3. They're still strong. Uh, The booklet in the DVD set for Season 3 has a letter and introduction by Robert Picardo, who played Dr. Dick Richards. Uh, There's an interview with Dana Delaney, who talks about how China Beach helped her grow as an actor, and she hints at the flash-forwards that are a big part of Season 4. Nancy Giles, who plays Frankie, is also interviewed on on these bonus features, and she talks about how she auditioned without a script, and how she enjoyed the episodes where she sang, which are several episodes of the show. She also talks about her chemistry with Troy Evans, which really is evident throughout the scenes they do together, and I that's why I said that I think that whole subplot of their relationship and his growth of a character, it makes it work really, really well. If you didn't have the skilled actors that you have and the chemistry between these two actors, in addition to the strong writing, it would not have come off as well as it does, and you wouldn't have had both those characters be likable. And finally, there's an interview with producer John Wells, who talks about the show's accuracy, as well as a gag reel. And now I'm going to close this out by reading another letter. Uh, This one's from the Tales from the Five and Dime bonus book that's in the DVD set. This is from Ellie Whitsett. She writes to John Sackert Young, who is one of the creators, She says, I married a casualty of Vietnam 20 years after the war, a spiritual casualty whose wounds I could not see. He was running when I met him, but I couldn't see that then. For two years, I lived in his pain, not understanding, not knowing, and then he vanished from my life. Now I see China Beach and I begin to understand. Nothing touches me more than this one hour each week which seeks, I must believe, to honor the men and women who served in Vietnam and to give them dignity. Honor and dignity were, I suppose, due to the nature of this war, things that we, our country, did not automatically bestow upon the veterans of this war, and that perhaps they had felt they did not deserve. Your labor of love, and that of your writers, cast and crew, have surely succeeded in restoring these most personal and deserved spiritual possessions to the soldiers and saints of Vietnam. 
If such love continues to abound, perhaps one day they will all stop running and come home. Very truly yours, Ellie Whitsett. And that'll do it. Um, I was a short look at season three, a short look at 74, but next episode is going to be a longer one. Um, first of all, I've got the extra sized issue 75 of the NOM, which is several stories in one issue that cover the My Lai Massacre. And I am going to talk quite a bit about season four, which I've mentioned several times in this episode because it's the last season of China Beach and it's really, really good. It's a strong finish. Uh, to this really, really strong show. So, until then, uh, don't forget you can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Don't forget to rate the show in iTunes and write write me an email. I know I'm getting these shows out a little more infrequently than I used to, but I'm trying to get back on a regular schedule so I can finish this out strong as we head to episode 100, which is about 15 or 16 episodes away. So if you've been here from the beginning, thank you very much. If you're just coming on now, I hope you're enjoying this. And again, thanks for listening and take care. the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacor of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.